here's, here's what's kind of going on. We're in the middle of a text that I know is exceedingly glorious and controversial. It is as glorious as it is controversial. It will give you as much joy as it will give you discomfort. Because it talks about the work of God. Romans chapter 8, by the way, if you want to turn there. Romans uh, chapter 8, verses 28 through 30. The church has experienced an intramural squabble over this passage of Scripture for years. For years. Because it covers the doctrine of sovereign election and choice on the part of God in terms of those that come to faith in Christ. That's what it deals with. And that is truth that raises all kinds of questions in people's minds. That's why I'm doing this on Sunday morning and not in a Sunday school class, because you can't ask me any hard questions. Okay? That's how smart I am. You just have to listen, okay? Many people... In reading this text, God works all things together for good to those who love him, to those that he has called according to his purpose. Those that he called, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his son, that they might be the firstborn among many brethren. Those that he called, he also justified, and those that he justified, he also glorified. That is as high as it... I don't have anything more exciting to tell you than those promises. I don't have any more glorious truth to expose to you than the heart of God and the plan of God for your life. But here's my fear. My fear is that many of us are trying to rescue God from the clear and apparent meaning of this text. I spent a significant portion of my life as a pastor and as a Christian trying to rescue God from the apparent implications of this passage of Scripture. And I'm just going to tell you this, okay? I'm done fighting that battle. My desire is just to let God be God in terms of what he says about why anyone who believes and loves him is in him. He establishes the ground rules. He affects the call. He brings the change. And so my concern is that as we look at this passage, we See the sovereignty of God that is exhaustive. It covers everything and salvation, particularly in this context. It is unavoidable. Our problem is that we often have clung to a view of free will that is not biblically justifiable. We insist that we are free moral agents. And we interpret that to mean we can choose good or bad in terms of ultimate choosing. And I want to I beg to differ with that presupposition that assumes that we are completely and utterly free. Because Ephesians 2.1 says this. It says, we are dead in our trespasses and sin. And in terms of righteousness, we are rendered in that, in that state unresponsive to the call and voice of God. Apart from him activating in some way our heart by the work of his spirit, we, are, we have a free will, but what do we choose? We choose sin. Because that's what we are in our essence. It's our nature. We are utterly depraved. That's what the Bible teaches. We're not capable of choosing God and his glorious plan of salvation. And so Jesus says to his disciples, Hey guys, you didn't choose me. I chose you. And you can't come to me unless the Father lovingly and irresistibly draws you to himself. That's the clear teaching of Christ. 
And I don't know why the church has resisted the exhaustive sovereignty of God, except to say that it raises questions in our minds. Look, you're going to have to learn to live with some ambivalence, with some lack of clarity in terms of the glory of God. He tells us enough that we can't comprehend it already. And he doesn't even take us into the realms that are incomprehensible. He doesn't take us there. He just states the fact and doesn't justify his decision making for us so that we can sit back and say, okay, God, since I understand, I'm okay with you being sovereign in terms of my eternal destiny. He doesn't give us that kind of prerogative. We have a free will, but it has fallen and it is dead to righteousness. It is not attracted to righteousness. Let God be God as you go through this passage. Let God speak. And if you have, if you have a disagreement with what I share, here's what I want to ask you to do. Please, feel free to call me, talk to me, ask me questions. But I want to ask you to do this before you do that. Argue with the text first. Go and, if you disagree with something I'm saying, go and find your disagreement in the text first. And then come and I will be delighted to sit down and talk about the truth of God's sovereign work in saving sinners, rebels, for his glory. And to do that this morning, I want us to jump back into this text that we have spent last Sunday working on and then moving forward. A text that contains promises for a very specific group of people. Verse 28 says, we know that in all things... God works for the good, and we talked about this last week, this is the ultimate outcome and good of those who love Him. Those who love Him are those who have been called according to His purpose. And then the rest of the verse talks about the purpose of God. Okay, so there's this undeniable and unbreakable chain of thought that talks about how rebels have come into the loving care of God. And in that realm, if you love God, because the Spirit of God is prompting such love, this is His commitment to you. This promise is particularly for those who have believed the good news of Christ and have experienced a incre an incredible change of heart for the glory of God. Last Sunday morning, we addressed this thought. And it's first in your notes this morning. God's plan for us is His all-encompassing, saving purpose. God's plan for us is His all-encompassing, saving purpose. The unshakable conviction that is shared in verse 28 is for everyone who loves God and has been called according to His purpose and knows Him personally. Here's the promise. He is active in our lives. He is sovereign in all things in our lives. He works for the ultimate good of his children, particularly those who are actively loving him. So if you are loving yourself and loving the world, and you read this passage and say, I find some comfort and solace in this, you are self-deceived. The promise of this text is for those who love Him. And for those who love Him, He is working out everything, every experience in your life for your ultimate good and for His ultimate glory. That is the promise that emerges from verse 28. Now, here's a question I didn't address last week and I want to touch on it real quick. What are the all things that are mentioned in verse 35 and in 38 through 39? 
What are the all things that God is working together in a way that will bring a smile to the face of his children? What I want you to notice as you look at these verses, verse 35 first, is that these are not pleasant things. These are the difficult things. This promise comes to believers who are living the Christian life in a context where there is opposition and friction. Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Verse 35 says, shall trouble or hardship persecution or famine or nakedness or danger and then he goes to the ultimate or sword which is clearly a reference to the event of death at the end of a weapon all right that's the things that god is working through verse 38 i am convinced that neither death nor life angels or demons the present or the future any powers height depth anything else in all creation, I am convinced that it will not be able to separate us from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus. Now think about that. Take that list and memorize the things that God is using to bring about good results and ultimately good purposes in the life of everyone who loves him, those that have been called according to his sovereign, incredible, and glorious purpose. All things involve and include the passing of Mark Flummerfeld's mom this week. All things include the surgery that Dan Slack's going to go through tomorrow morning, having both knees replaced. All things involve losing your keys. All things involve the Eagles losing their game last night. Okay? All things involve, Caitlin, your trip. It's on God's list. It's in the realm and sphere of what he is watching over. In spite of all of the negative circumstances that surround it, he is working in all of these things. And you could add from your own life numerous concerns. I tried to give you a list of them last week. We do not have to understand the all things or even welcome the thought that God is working them all together. We simply must remember that he is working in and through all of them for our supreme good, not for temporary benefit. And folks, so often our response to trouble seeks an immediate, temporary benefit. You know why? Because we can't see tomorrow. And we can't see the positive outcome of our marital struggle. We can't see the positive outcome of losing our job because we have a narrow, fixed, temporary perspective. And what this text does is it gives a massive promise to everyone who has been called and loves God. That God, eternal, almighty, sovereign, is watching over everything in your life. Not for temporary pleasure or momentary success, but for the glory of his name and for the supreme good of those that love him. Now that promise should charge most of your batteries. But God knows it's not all of your batteries, and so he goes on to Help us to understand a little bit even more of what is going on here. The things that Paul is talking about in this text, one friend of mine put it this way. This sounds a little corny, but I think you'll get this. Christians don't experience coincidences. They experience God incidences. He's in everything. In terms of presence, watching over, working through all things for the good of those who love him. That's a promise you should cling to. And as some writers have said, it is a promise you should memorize and pillow your head upon at night. In your bulletin, you have a card that has these verses written on them. I want to challenge you. Dads, I want to challenge you. Teach your kids this truth. 
Memorize it with it. Don't have them memorize it. Memorize it. Make it part of your theological war chest. Make it part of the truth that is the sword of the Spirit that you take and respond to the difficult circumstances of life. The circumstances in this text are severe circumstances. They are life-threatening circumstances. Famines kill. Swords kill. Falling from heights kills. Being in the depth of the sea kills. This text is intended to bring comfort to the heart of believers no matter what circumstances you're facing. And that's why when God talks about it, He talks about it in polarized categories. Life and death. Height and low. All things good and bad. And He's saying, I am sovereign in everything in your life. And He wants us as His children to not doubt Him, but to rest in the God incidences that He is working out for our supreme good. Here's the question then that comes up as you move into verse 29. And we get into the thorny theological issues. That I personally don't think they're thorny. I think we should just let the text speak. As one song says, word of God, speak. What this passage says in verse 29 is this. It says, those that God foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the likeness of his son that he may become the firstborn among many brothers. I want to focus our attention on two words. Those that he foreknew, he also predestined. Let me just give you definitions. These, are, these two words are God's purpose and plan to do us good in eternity past. Prior to your existence, these are the Beneficial, beneficent decisions that God made to do His children good. And it is encapsulated into amazing thoughts. He foreknew us in eternity past. And the word for foreknew, you'll know this word right away. The Greek word is prognosis. Knowledge beforehand. Speaking the future ahead of time. But it's more than a premonition. So, oh, I thought that was going to happen. Now, some of you Giants fans are thinking, I thought the Eagles were going to lose. Okay, it's not, it's not that, it kind of got it vaguely right. Now the word goes further than that. And also the word he predestined. This word simply means to plan and decide beforehand. To plan and decide beforehand. I read for you from Acts chapter 4, verse 27 and 29. It's a text that deals with the crucifixion of Jesus. And it is a text that describes the crucifixion of Jesus as the foreordained, predetermined plan of God. Same word is used. Listen to what this says. Indeed, Herod and Pontius Pilate met together with the Gentiles and the people of Israel in this city to conspire against your holy servant, Jesus, whom you, Father, had anointed. They did what your power and will... Now listen to this. They did what your power and will had determined beforehand should happen. Now think about that. The death of Christ on Calvary's cross, I don't know any believer that will argue the point that the death of Christ was the predetermined plan of God. Here's how clear Peter makes it. He is the lamb slain when? Before the foundation of the world. 
in the mind of God. He was the heaven sent, sacrifice, sinless son of God to pay the price for your sin. That was the predetermined plan of God. Okay, in the same word, God talks about your salvation in the same kind of way. That thought will not make you proud. That thought will make you humble. Because when you understand that he foreknew and predetermined your salvation, it cannot produce arrogance. It will produce an excessive humility. Why? Because you know the one he chose. You know the nature of your heart. You know the ugly things as Carmelo prayed that nobody sees. You know that stuff. You know that stuff as his child. And he still loves you and is committed to your success and ultimate and supreme good. God foreordained the death of his son and he foreordained the salvation of every one who loves him. And that's why when I look at Romans 8, 28 to 29 and 30, here's in my mind, I realize this text is a promise for those that have trusted Christ. It's a promise to encourage and comfort the heart of Christians who are going through difficult circumstances in their life, the typical circumstances of life in a fallen world. It is for them he wants them to know, I have an unbroken chain of purpose and supreme good for you that was worked out prior to your existence. And it is immutable and unchangeable. You know what that should cause us to do? Me. Me. By God's grace and for his glory. In the Old Testament, these words are used to speak of the establishing of a personal relationship of care and affection. The idea of foreknowing is the idea in the Old Testament is to place love upon someone ahead of time, to express love and affection towards an individual ahead of time. That is an amazing thought. John Murray put it this way, to foreknow is synonymous with foreloved. It means to fix one's regard and affection upon. It is more than simply knowing what would happen. It is a posture of affection that the Father chooses towards those who have spurned his love. This is indeed, I think, amazing territory biblically. Deuteronomy chapter 7 uses these words. It says, the Lord did not set his affection on you or choose you. Oh, both words, foreknow and choose. Set affection on and choose. He didn't do it because you were more numerous than other people. You were the fewest of all people, but it was because the Lord loved you and kept the oath that he swore to your fathers that he brought you out with a mighty hand and redeemed you from the land of slavery, from the power of Pharaoh, king of Egypt. Know therefore that the Lord, your God, is God. He is the faithful God, keeping his covenant of love that is grounded in his foreknowledge. He is keeping his covenant of love to a thousand generations, to those who, and here's where you get the echo from the Old Testament, to those who love him and keep his commandments. Amos chapter 3 and verse 2. You only, Israel, I have selected, chosen of all the families on the earth. And those are the identical words in the Greek translation of the Old Testament that God uses to speak of his affection and love and concern 
for us as His children. God's plan in foreknowing and predestining us is then worked out in a very unique and specific purpose. Notice what the text says, 829. He foreknew and also predestined us. And notice, if you're in the New International Version, I want you to notice a word that emerges. I think I count this five times. Verse 28. God works for the good of those who love him. Beginning of verse 29. Those that God foreknew and predestined. Beginning at verse 30. Those he predestined. Middle of the verse. Those he called. End of the verse. Those he justified. And it's implied with every one of the verbs. Which starts to tell you what? That this text is not a general promise to all people. It is a specific promise to those who in the context are those who love him and those that love him are those that have been called according to his glorious purpose. Who should have supreme confidence in life that God is working everything in our lives for good. And his predetermined purpose is to foreknow and predestine us to be conformed, notice this, to the likeness of his son. God's plan for you as a Christian, if you love God and you know Christ, His plan for you is to shape you into the image of His Son. That is His predetermined course of action. It flows out of His foreknowledge. It flows out of His predetermination and purpose. And the outworking of that is that every believer will become more and more increasingly like the Savior. And let me tell you something. The process of becoming like Christ is a painful process. But it's good. The supreme outcome of it is glorious. His desire and goal is to shape the very image of Christ in your life by the work of His glorious and wonderful Spirit. A complete change that involves our character and our conduct. This means that in the present, God has taken an active, personal interest in your success and progress in becoming like Christ. Now that should get you out of bed in the morning with a different attitude. That's why Paul later says, if God is for us, who can be against us? Honest answer, everybody. (laughs) But who can effectively oppose the purpose of God? Now look, people can oppose me. People can throw me down the stairs emotionally. I can hear a rumor and let it shatter my confidence temporarily. Who can oppose me? Anybody can. Who can oppose the plan of God for you to make you like Jesus? No one. Why? Because it is his predetermined plan. And it is a link of chain links that are bound together by the power of God. They're the purposes, folks, that he's going to work out in your life. Young people, don't fear failure. Don't live bound by the fear of your mistakes, past, present, or future. If you know Christ, he is determined to bring you through to the end for his glory, not for you. Not so people say, oh, what a wonderful person. You know, Jake Adams says, they say that. Okay. But they don't know you. Okay. Okay. It's not about us. God isn't trying to get glory for us. God is working through sinners so that the glory goes to him. And he has committed himself 
to your becoming everything that he predetermined for you. And here's the way you should look at it. Like, he did that for me. He did that for you, folks. He predetermined to shape Jesus in your life. That truth has begun to blow my mind. He comes, Romans 8 says earlier, in the person of the Spirit to help you fight sin, Romans 8, 14. If in the flesh you go to war against sin, you will die. But if by the Spirit you put to death the deeds of the flesh, you will live. You know what he's saying? If you allow the Spirit of God, who is the personal presence of God, shaping Jesus in you, if you give him free reign in your life, he will do all these things because you love him. That should so encourage the heart of every Christian. God's immutable, undeniable plan and purpose is to make you more and more like Jesus, even though when you look in the mirror, you see someone who doesn't really resemble him very well. Of this thought of foreknowledge, predestination to become like Jesus, J.I. Packer makes this observation because it is indeed a difficult truth. I, I will not hide from the fact that the doctrine of foreknowledge and predestination is in fact the deep end of the Christian theological pool. It is. You swim in it with lead weights tied to your waist. Okay, it is the deep end, but it is the glorious end. He says this, because many resist the idea that God beforehand, you mean before time? That's what the text says. Chose people to be rescued from sin and made like his son and to live with him forever. Yes, I believe that. J.I. Packer says this. He says, ultimately, all Christians believe in God's sovereignty in salvation. Some of you are saying, oh, I don't. Listen to what he says. By the way, this man's like 80-some years old. She used to be respectful and listening, okay? He says, we all give thanks for our salvation. And then he asks the question, why do we do that? <laughs> because we know it wouldn't happen apart from us. And so when we pray, what do we do? We're acknowledging, God, thank you for saving me. Thank you for allowing me to see my sin and to trust in your son, Jesus Christ. Right? Isn't that? And when you pray for the salvation of your lost relatives, ladies that have husbands who do not yet know the Savior, when you pray, do you pray as if it depends on you or God? Mom and dad, when you pray for the converting grace of God to fall on your child, do you pray as if it depends on you or God? This thought stunned me. He said, you know what the bottom line is? When we get on our knees and pray, giving thanks or praying for the salvation of others, we all believe in the sovereignty of God. We all believe that salvation depends on God. And we pray as if it's up to God to save them. Isn't that true? That thought stunned me. Because I resisted that thought. I thought, well, it kind of depends on the presentation too. Of the gospel now. The presentation is essential and necessary. Yes. It's the means that God uses to accomplish his plan and purpose. And this is indeed very, very, very glorious. Our gratitude and our prayers for salvation, he says, show that we know that salvation depends on God. The concern for most of us is this. 
couldn't this doctrine of foreknowledge and predestination, which you have to wrestle with in the text if you don't like it, couldn't this doctrine promote apathy, complacency, and even arrogance? Those are the words of John Stott. Couldn't the doctrine of the foreknowledge of God, of the predetermined plan of God, indeed produce apathy, complacency, and arrogance? I think the honest answer to that question is, absolutely it could and it does. But when it does, it is a perversion of the word that is described here. When Paul gets done these chapters, he's going to fire off in chapters 9 through 11. When he gets to the end, and he's going to say how incredibly indescribable is God's love. He is humbled to pieces. And in Galatians 6, he ends the letter about the glory of the gospel by saying this, God forbid that I should glory and boast in anything like I boast in the cross of Christ. What is he saying? He's saying there is nothing that will fill your heart with joy and fill you with confidence and hope about your future like the cross of Christ and God's predetermined plan to bring that to bear in the life of those who believe and trust in Him. Now that is glorious truth. He then goes on to say this. He says, the biblical truth about salvation breeds assurance, not apprehension. It breeds responsibility, not apathy. Could you be apathetic about this truth? I mean, could you possibly be apathetic about the fact that God is committed and devoted to your success in your Christian life and blow that off and live an apathetic, unloving life? I think it'd be impossible. I think the reason our lives are often apathetic is we think that our salvation came down to a decision that we made. It didn't. It came down to the grace of God that overwhelmed a sinful, stubborn heart and brought about change. It'll breed responsibility, not apathy. Holiness not complacency, and humility, not arrogance. Third thought, and I'm going to close with this and not finish my message this morning. The third thought is this. God's saving plan and purpose affects and protects us in the present. Okay, so the previous thought was God purposed and planned to do us good in eternity past based on the words foreknowledge and predestination to become like Jesus. Okay, the third thought is this. God's saving plan and purpose affects and protects us in our present experience. Okay, so in the past, he did something for your good that will presently transform your life. He uses two words to describe his work in the present church age that we live in. Notice these two words. It says, and those that he predestined he also called. And those that he called, he also justified. Okay, both of those words refer to the present experience of every believer. If you love God and have been converted by his spirit and are experiencing his love in your life, these are the two things that he is doing for you in the present. The word first, he called. Definition of this word very simply is this. A divine summons that comes to your life through the instrument of the gospel. Okay, a divine summons from God that comes to you and came to you, if you know Christ, through 
the message of the gospel. Think back to when you trusted Christ. Think of the message that you heard that God used to overwhelm your resistance. Some of you fought a pretty long time. My father-in-law fought 12 years. 12 long years. I remember the day when God overwhelmed his resistance. I want to tell you something. My father-in-law, is Cy here, by the way? He's not? Okay, I can tell the whole truth then. No, <laughs> just kidding. When my father-in-law came to Christ, I saw, as an adult, one of the most amazing transactions that I ever saw. I saw a man who despised his wife because of her faith in Christ and looked at his daughter askew. He loved Ruth, but he wasn't quite sure about all this. Hated my pastor, who died three weeks ago. Hated him with a passion. You know why? Because he was the man that brought the gospel into the life of my mother-in-law and my wife. And the, you know what they did? They cast aside their religious effort and rested in the grace of God and came to a place of absolute assurance and didn't need religion anymore, wanted a personal relationship with Christ and thought that everyone should have that experience and went and listened to a man who believed that Sai needed to trust Christ too. That his religious effort and his good life wasn't enough. Twelve years later, after he finally got angry at the message of the gospel because it was the first time he really heard it, God broke his heart and rescued him from his self-righteousness. And he was a good man. He is a good man. And God just overwhelmed that and brought him to a place where on a Saturday... My father-in-law does not cry in contrast to myself. Okay? He just doesn't cry. He's, just, he's, he's like my wife is. They're strong emotionally, just very matter-of-fact with things. They work through things very, very well. I envy that. But one day God had to shatter his pride. He said, Timmy said, he came up to see me. I read through Romans 1 to 3. I've never done that in evangelizing someone, ever. Read through Romans 1 to 3. I looked at him, we were done. I said, Sai, look, I said, here's the bottom line. Because he called me and said, oh, we need to talk. He got really mad and he said, we need to talk. I said, yeah, we do. He came up and I read Romans 1 to 3 that all of us are sinners in need of God's grace. We need to be justified by the work of Jesus on Calvary's cross. That's what we need. Shared that with him. And at the end, I simply said this. I said, Sai, at six years old, I saw something. The gospel. And it's 60. You can't see it. That ended the conversation. And he went on his way. Fighting. Fighting with the gospel of grace that says that anybody at any point in their life, in spite of their history, can be rescued from their sin and rebellion when they hear the message of the truth of Christ. And on Saturday, he climbed up and down the ladder, cleaning gutters in the rain. Not something my father-in-law would normally do. He said, Tim, I cried all day. As I saw my sin and became convinced that the Son of God had died to pay the price for my sin. And God grabbed my heart and changed me. Understand this. You know how persistent my mother-in-law is. And I mean this in the best way. My mother-in-law is 
really persistent. Can you imagine her coming to Christ and you get your husband who's the board of director for some mutual funds, runs his own chemical company, and she is trying to convince this man who's duly degreed in accounting and chemistry that you need to change. He didn't like it. Here was the evidence of conversion for me. He called me, he said, Tim, I went in the house and I sat in the breakfast room and I waited for your mother-in-law to come home. And when she got home, I told her that I wanted to pray and confess my sin and place trust and faith in Jesus. When he told me that, I knew he was a changed man. And he has just, I mean, you, you all know him now. This is 20 years later. This is when we first moved here. March of this year will be 20 years. God, through the most amazing set of all things, reached down in, and changed his heart. He can't even remember making a decision. He just knows that his heart got changed. That led to a prayer of repentance and confession. Because he finally listened to the message of the gospel. Now here's, here's the thought I want to leave you with. Just somewhat quickly. Every individual is called to a personal decision about Christ. Okay, and I don't in this, I don't in any way want to deny the fact that individuals are personally responsible to make a decision before God about the cross work of Christ. Please do not hear me saying that we do not bear a God-given responsibility to go out in our community with this glorious message and to proclaim it to everyone who will listen because we do have a God-given responsibility. It, for me, is a matter of obedience that we as believers share our faith in Christ with the world around us. It is the Great Commission. It is what the Savior told every believer to go out into the world and to preach the good news of Christ's death, burial, and resurrection. That is undeniable. But here's what I take issue with. We are all called to make a personal decision. But that decision to trust Christ is never an unaided decision. It is never done without an assist from the Spirit of God who awakens a dead heart and grants a desire to see sin, to see Christ. It's never unaided. Acts chapter 16 just listen to these two verses. Acts chapter 16 and verse 14. Paul's preaching in a town called Philippi. There is a lady there who is a businesswoman of prominence. She's a seller of purple cloth. Paul's preaching to this woman who knows about God but hasn't yet trusted Christ. One of those listening was a woman named Lydia a dealer in purple cloth from the city of Thyatira. She was a worshiper of God. As she's listening, the Lord opened her heart to respond to Paul's message. Do you see the connection? Paul is doing what? He's doing what every Christian should do. Take the message of Christ and go out into the world with absolute confidence that you are in a cooperative effort with God in taking this message of Jesus to the world around you. Without fear and without apprehension, with utter confidence and boldness, you don't have to hype it up. You can just confidently share the message. And what it says here is that the Lord opened her heart. Now, 
You go a little bit later in the chapter, what happens? Paul and Silas are thrown into prison for preaching the good news of a resurrected Savior. They're thrown into prison. There, what do they do? They do what we did a few minutes ago. They sang praises to God and gave thanks to God. In what? All things. Because why? God's working through all things. Paul and Silas were sitting in prison. What do you want to do? Let's sing. And they do. And what happens? The gospel message is communicated through song. Then God sends another thing. An earthquake that breaks open the gates of the jail cells. And the fear of the Philippian jailer is that all the prisoners have escaped and he's going to die. So he takes his sword and prepares to fall on it to end his life prior to the Roman soldiers taking it for him. Paul and Silas yell, don't do that. This is a God incident. My page turned. The jailer called for all the lights. He rushed in. And fell trembling, yeah? Before Paul and Silas, he just stared death in the face. He then brought them out and asked them, Sirs, what must I do to be saved? God took the message sung from the heart of beaten godly men who saw their time in jail as an all thing that God could work through. And so in that prison, they sing praises to God at midnight. Finally, the senses come back. They get a little bit of clarity in their head, and what do they do with it? They start singing praises to God. And this hardened Philippian jailer, who was probably a Roman soldier or centurion in his prior life to being a jailer, is broken by a God incident that shakes his life, causes him to look into the face of death, and right away, what does he remember? The glory of Christ that Paul and Silas had proclaimed. And what does God do? God draws him into the kingdom. He and his whole family are baptized that night. Let me ask you something. Did that happen because he just made a good decision? You know what it sounds like to me? It sounds like to me in Acts 16, God is working all things together. Everything. Paul and Silas probably go, why did we get beaten? All we did was obey God. All we did was do exactly what he told us to do. And here we are in prison. It's not what they said. You know what they said? They said God is capable of working in and through all things for his amazing glory. And folks, when you understand that, I'm going to tell you what's going to happen. Number one, you will become so overwhelmingly grateful for the gospel of grace that God foreordained and predestined for you that you will fall on your knees and sing. You will give thanks to the God of heaven that he broke the stubborn rebellion of your heart, showed you your sin, how somebody came and shared the glorious gospel of God's grace. And God opened your eyes to believe. And you cried out in repentance and faith, assisted by God's convicting spirit, and your life will never be the same. Folks, that's the message. That's what Romans 8, 28 is saying. Don't let the controversy of what you don't understand keep you from what is abundantly clear. God worked ahead of time to secure your salvation and is committed to your success and to your supreme good for his glory.
And may we leave here today. I'm not even going to deal with the passage that's going to make me cry. And I'm thankful to God for that. I'll come back to that next week. When you get ready to share your faith with someone, would you just, in your heart, just say, God, help me. Because evangelism is a cooperative effort. And if you experience any sense of pride because God worked in your heart to bring you to faith in Christ, kill it by the Spirit. Put it to death. And say, you know what, Satan, I didn't make that choice. I didn't want to make that choice. My heart was dead and unresponsive to the message of grace, Ephesians 2, 1. God made me alive and gave me eyes to see the message of Christ. And folks, I want to tell you something. For that, you will be You'll be grateful for the rest of your life. You will also be eternally grateful. Because the best is yet to come for those that know and love him. Let's bow our heads. Father.